Hi, I'm Hassel. And I'm JP. And this is Pulled Corks Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13. And as we promised, we have a couple of awesome champagnes to introduce. We do. Today is all about champagne. And uh, I always noticed how a lot of podcasters, they usually do champagne for their first episode. Like, oh, first, you know, inauguration, let's do champagne. And we didn't want to be like everybody else, so we waited 13 episodes. So episode 13 is the right one for champagne. Yeah, we've been kind of itching to do it, too. Like, we really wanted to be doing champagne because we like to drink champagne. And, yeah, and France won the World Cup, so yeah, exactly. we had a lot of reason to drink champagne. Yeah, this is for, uh, this is for you, France. This is for you guys, and we uh, celebrate you. This little celebration for uh, for the World Cup Championship. Congratulations! I hope some of you are listening. <laughs> yeah. So I doubt have it. a little sip before we get into it. Cheers! Cheers! Mm, yep, really good, delicious. Wow! So they won. They had to celebrate. But what did Napoleon say about champagne? Uh, yes, he said uh, you need it for a celebration or de- or for a. Uh, in defeat. In you defeat. Need you need it even more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's get started. Uh, and actually, what we just tried, it, uh, we'll tell you more about the uh, brand later, but we just tried uh, Ayala. Brit Nature. So a really straightforward champagne. Absolutely. Delicious. So let's get into champagne and what champagne is, why we call it champagne, and uh, how it all started. I'm not going to try to get too deep into history, but you know, there's a. I've heard a million different stories, people talking about where sparkling wine and champagne comes from. And they're wrong. Most of them are wrong. Most of what you heard is wrong. There's so much like folklore and yeah. mythology around it. For starters, it's not the first sparkling wine. Probably not. Well, it's, it's yeah. the Greeks wrote about it. The Romans wrote about sparkling wine. Uh, they had they didn't understand it. They had no idea why they were having this. Uh, they considered it a fault. Sometimes some thought it was because they uh, were producing their wine on the wrong moon phase. Sometimes they thought it was evil spirits causing this. Sometimes they thought it was good spirits causing this. Uh, it just depended on who you talked to at the time. You would get all these different opinions on why they were having this problem. They considered it a problem at the time. And it could be very problematic and a little bit dangerous at times. So it, it's, it didn't just originate. There's always been wine that would end up sparkling on accident yeah. for a long time. But it was a long time before people started doing it on purpose that took a lot longer and it's amazing how long it took before people discovered why they were getting sparkling wine exactly pretty much up until all louis pasteur yeah (laughs) basically the the age when champagne became a big thing so early 1800s yes so what was happening in champagne for a long time because they made still wines they're, they're, they made still wines for quite a while, uh, actually until the fifth century. Even they were making wines, and then they had there was an edict 
It was proclaimed by the Roman emperor who did not uh, want... He wanted all the uh, colonial uh, vines uprooted. Yeah. So that killed production in the 5th century. And then I think 100 years later or so, Emperor Probus, he reinstated that they could grow wine again in Champagne. And they built a temple to uh, Bacchus and started making wine again in the Champagne region. And they kept it still for uh, most of... Actually, throughout most of history, it's been still wine. But there was a problem with their still wine. We had their, their, their terrible weather, and it's sour. Yeah. But they had another problem that they would have sometimes, and it was causing them to lose a lot of production. When they started... When bottles started to become famous after the invention of the, of the cork, yeah. basically. So bottles haven't always been like the preferred method of... Of keeping wine. wine. Yeah, I mean, it was barrels only for a really long time. But uh, once they started using bottles, they had these problems in, uh, especially in Champagne, because the weather sucks there. They have a, kind of an early winter for, for grape growing. Uh, the temperatures drop a little early, and they didn't really understand yeast fermentation at the time. So they would be harvesting in September or October, and they would start to put the, the, the must into the vats and start fermenting their wine, and then the fermentation would stop. So they thought, oh, it's done. That's it. It's done. Let's put it in the bottles, guys. Wrap it up. Throw it in the bottles. Well, it wasn't done. See, the temperature dropped. So they still had a lot of residual sugar and a lot of residual sugar and live yeast that was just dormant. And they would bottle this stuff up and they would stick it in the cellar and then spring would roll around and everything would heat up and then all their bottles would explode and shards of glass would fly everywhere and and it was pretty crazy and they couldn't figure it out. They had they had no idea what they, they needed to do. They, they didn't did. understand. Some people you'll hear people talk about Dom Perignon. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, yeah, he was the father of champagne. He created champagne. He invented it. He went running down the hallways of the monastery screaming, you know, I've, brothers, I've put the stars in a bottle. And then that was all the marketing campaign in the mid-19th century yeah. to sell more champagne. He didn't really even like sparkling, sparkling wine. It was a fault. He actually said the only wine from the region that was worth anything at all was... Uh, Blanc de Noir from the Pinot Noir grape. The still wine. The still wine. And his job, his job that was given to him, that was charged to him at the Abbey de Hautvillers in Champagne by the other monks was to get rid of the bubbles. Yeah. So it's a little bit odd. It was a problem back then. It was a problem. So it's a little bit odd that, you know, one of the most expensive brands or labels of Champagne is Dom Perignon. Yeah. A little bit ridiculous. So eventually they did kind of start to get things under control and people started to enjoy it. And it became more of a royalty type deal. The, the royals really enjoyed uh, uh, the, these wines from Champagne. Yeah, it became kind of a rarity. Because right. That region specialized in and producing it. The producers, you know, started labeling and marketing in a way that it was a high class. They so also figured out that the carbonation made their sour northern country correct, wines actually correct. quite palatable. 
And so while they were doing that, it became really popular with the middle class, so production started going up. And with production going up, and they still hadn't got this completely under control yet, their bottles were still exploding. And even in the mid-1800s... They also had to figure out that specific bottle The shape, shape of the bottle. Thickness uh, of the glass. Yes. So they... When the cellar workers looked like a catcher in Major League Baseball. <laughs> they were good on work the catcher, except instead of padding, it was made of iron. They, uh, they had like, iron like, shin guards, iron mask like to protect their face. Yeah. You know, it was dangerous down there because once... These bottles were all bottled under the same conditions. And the glass, the thickness, and everything was about the same in all the bottles. So when one would blow up, it was like dominoes, like everything in the cellar would start going up and they would lose between 20 and 90 percent of their inventory in one time so it was it was tough it was really tough in the beginning until they got this right but then they started making thicker glass they changed the shape of their bottles that's why you have the punt at the bottom of the bottle it's like the the big divot that's in the bottom uh that that was actually for strength yeah it makes it more resistant yeah more resistant to yeah but they figured it out and Production picked up and became standardized, and that's what we're going to get into next. We're like, how do they make champagne? Well, first they take they make a normal wine, and uh, they ferment it out like a normal wine, and and then they when they bottle it, the bottle's different. See, at the top of a wine bottle, if you notice, it has that big lip around the bottom of it, uh, right below the top. That is for a uh, crown cap, like you would get on a beer. Yeah. You know that from your right beer bottle. Yeah, just like a just like a beer cap. So they would add sugar to it after it would ferment, and this is called the dosage. They had sugar and live yeast. Sometimes they had live yeast, uh, or the not uh, the uh, natural method, where they would just use another a younger wine wine that still had uh, sugar. The other thing we have to mention is usually they don't use just one base wine for one vintage. True. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Since the weather sucks in Champagne, and really it's not a high-quality grape that they grow there, most mostly. Uh, there are some that do. Yeah, they don't usually get enough quality grapes to make, uh, to declare a vintage. So they'll have to blend a few years together. Also for constant quality, they want to have... Right, yeah, they, they want things to be... Year. Yes, exactly. Uh, recognizable. So they, you will see some that have a vintage on them, a date. But most champagne you go out to buy, is you're not going to find a date. You're not going to find a year on that bottle anywhere. And it's a blend of, of several different years, usually three different years. Anyways, back to production. Sorry. Sidebar. Mm. <laughs> Back to production. So they add the dosage. They add they add the sugar uh, to the to the wine. Sometimes they add. Usually there's dormant dormant yeast in there already. Sometimes they add a little bit more yeast. So they add the sugar and then they put the crown cap on it. They don't cork it yet. They put this crown cap on it. And maybe you've seen these wine racks because they'll sell them like sometimes in uh, uh, like. Uh, a surplus store or something or, or souvenir shops or restaurants have them yeah it's like an A-frame where the bottles go in them 
pointing upside down. Up, nearly upside down, like at a 45 degree angle. And so they will put these, they'll put their these bottles in there, and every single day they'll turn them a fraction. Yeah. And that is to let the, as this yeast is eating the sugar that they added, they're getting a secondary fermentation inside the bottle. And what happens when yeast eats sugar? What's it do? It well, it produces alcohol. It, po- it poops alcohol and farts carbon dioxide. That's the best way to put it. That's exactly what it does. So as it's releasing this carbon dioxide, it's uh, pressurizing the inside of the bottle. And you have the crown cap on there. There's and no that way cr- to escape. There's no way for the gas to escape. So it force carbonates the liquid that's inside. And as this yeast is going through its many generations inside the bottle... New yeast is being born, old yeast is dying, and as the old yeast dies, it is sinking to the bottom of this, uh, or to the neck, neck settling onto that crown cap, and it looks like a little, it's like a sludge, kind of, uh, like a creamy, brownish, white, eggshell colored goo. Some wheat beers. Some some beers will have it on the bottom of the bottle. if you've never seen it before, it's just basically like a little slimy substance. Yeah. But it gets enough of it dies to where you actually have like a plug yeah. at the bottom. And so also, depending on how long the yeast is in there, uh, the decomposing, the decomposition of that yes. dead yeast uh, creates new flavors. It's called autolytic flavors. Right. Yeast autolytic flavors. So they will... They are the nutty, doughy. A lot of flavors. a lot of your champagnes will leave the wine in contact with that dead yeast, which is called lees, by the way. Leave it in contact with the lees for a really long time, and it will impart flavors, it, it, aromas that are like bread dough uh, and fresh dough, biscotti, uh, cookies. Uh, Little biscuit crackers, you know, beautiful, sweet, bready aromas that you'll get, and you'll also get these flavors. You know, it'll taste like cookies. The really good ones will taste like cookies, and it's amazing. It's great. That's my favorite style. Really yeasty. The really yeasty, really bready, you know, flavors. So they'll, they'll let that they'll sit on there and they'll gather these flavors, and then it comes time to put the cork in and sell it. Well, they don't want they want it to be clear and clean and pretty. They so they got to get this yeast out of there. They don't want you to see that. So what they do is as it's been gathering at the bottom on this crown cap and it's created this plug. The next step is called disgorgement. So the, well, one of the common methods now, modern com- modern methods, is they will freeze the neck of the bottle. And this freezes that plug of uh, lees, or dead yeast, um, on that crown cap, or right below the, or right above the crown cap. Then they take basically take a, uh, well this is a very uh, generic way of putting it but it explains it well they take a beer bottle opener they pop that cap off Mm -hmm. 
when they do, there's 90 psi in there. It shoots shoots, shoots that uh, frozen plug of dead yeast out, and as soon as that thing's gone, they shove a cork in there, and then they throw a uh, cage over that cork. So this is called disgorgement. Yeah, that's called disgorgement, and uh, then it's at that point it's bottled, and uh, it's it's ready to go. It's corked. It's going on a shelf somewhere. Basically, how they make champagne. champagne. So it's extra steps called the traditional method that is the traditional method if you have traditional method on any kind of bottle from anywhere in the world that's how it's made like mm-hmm. it's not made in a tank right it's made in the bottle yes and that's basically how they make it it became very popular well that and that believe that method or, or it did originate in champagne so there's some truth to you may that uh, sparkling wine itself did not was not always just in champagne. It's been all throughout history, but it was usually a fault. So yeah, usually the name champagne was quite common for all kinds of sparkling wines all over the world until the end of World War One, and even longer than that for a while in some places. Yeah. Spain in the U.S. it's still common. Well, in the U.S. the law was changed. But companies that were already using the term champagne were grandfathered in and allowed to continue to do it. And Corbell is a perfect example of that. If you go buy a bottle of Corbell, which I'll be honest, Corbell's not bad. It's cheap, you know, it's mass-produced. If you're in a pinch or having a party, nobody should stick their nose up at you because you got a bottle of Corbell. But if you look at a bottle of Corbell, it's going to say California Champagne. Yeah. Which is a complete misnomer. Because Champagne is a region. Yes, it is a region in France. Just like all most French wines are named regionally. Bordeaux, Champagne, Burgundy, Burgundy. Alsace. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but also like Spain, for example. And I think it was Cava is a new term. I think it originated in the 76 after when? they weren't able to use champagne. They were sued in the late in the 70s by France because even after this agreement this is, was it a UN agreement even the uh, I th- I think later the the original agree- agreement was after the Treaty, Treaty of Versailles, Versailles because Versailles, the yeah. Germans called all their sparkling champagne yeah and the uh, French wanted to pay them back for all kinds of stuff from World War One. Ah. So that was the original reason. Okay. So they were just... Spain was trying to loophole around this and they got away with it into the mid-70s by calling their sparkling wine Champagne. Yeah. Uh, they were sued by the French producers in the 70s and they settled on Cava yeah. instead of Champagne. So nowadays, if there is a champagne on the bottle and it is not from the U.S., you can be quite sure it's from Champagne, France. Correct. Unless it is a very old vintage. And nowadays, the region is really clearly defined. Yes. We were earlier talking in the episode about the Van Gris from Lorraine, that they were mm-hmm. delivering a lot of grapes to Champagne. Right. Also did Luxembourg. They made even base wines for Champagne. But that's all... Uh, stories of the past. And now, if there's champagne on the bottle and the wine is from France, you can be sure it's made there. 
that past kind of worked out for Luxembourg because they're producing some amazing sparkling wines there now. Yeah. Well, they call it Cremant. Cremant. Just like the other regions in France that make sparkling wines. They're not called Champagne. They're called Cremant. Cremant de Bourgogne. Cremant de Alsace. Cremant de Loire. Cremant de Loire. Yeah, you get a lot of regional varieties that are often very, very similar to Champagne at a much lower price point. Yeah, much lower. Sometimes you can find some good ones that definitely... Uh, you get that quality crossover. Some of them are just blow champagne out of the water. Yeah, you have to find them. But you do have, yeah, they're not just you know, yeah. at your gas station. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they are out there, and the, but the price point is way cheaper than what you would get at champagne. In champagne. Sure. The whole mythology and the brand value about, around champagne was basically built in the early to mid-1800s and then just continued over the ages. And even today, it's still like oh yeah, to go sparkling wine if you want to celebrate something right. Like rap videos, everywhere. oh yeah, Cristal, Dom Perignon, you find them everywhere. They're the go-to sparkling mm-hmm. wines of the world. Absolutely. So are they really that good? I like them. I think the proof <laughs> is in the pudding, and we have to try them. Yes, I agree. So we've already started with Ayala. Brit Nature, non-vintage. Yes, a non-vintage, like we talked about earlier. And it is, it definitely has that yeasty, bready, but not not overpowering with it. Yeah, it's a clear, sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. Maybe mostly Chardonnay grape. Yeah, talking about grapes, they're like the three major grapes of Champagne. Uh-huh. Chardonnay, the white grape, then... Pinot Noir that is made as a Blanc de Noir style. Yes. So basically a white wine made from red grapes. Correct. And then the Pinot Meunier. This is also a red grape in a white style. Right. And they are blended according to the recipe of the house. Sometimes you have a Blanc de Blanc that's only Chardonnay. Right. Sometimes they don't use the Pinot Meunier. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they... Put more of it in. Sometimes so they'll use only the Pinot Noir and you'll have a Blanc de Noir. That's really a question of style. Correct. And there's also a few other grapes they'll blend in there legally in very tiny amounts. Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Arbain, and Petit Meslier. Yeah, but but that's not very common and it's a very tiny amounts. Usually just to round things up a little bit there, just to put a little finishing touch on the end but yeah Chardonnay Pinot Noir Pinot Meunier that's the ones you gotta remember because those are the only important ones (laughs) so let's let's get into this let's do it so Ayala is a really like historical house I think founded in the early 1800s they're famous for establishing actually the dry style of Champagne that's popular today ah It, it used to be much sweeter yeah, I heard something like you could get up to like 300 grams of sugar in a bottle of champagne yeah. before. And even like some traditional older brands, they have much sweeter styles mm-hmm. still on sale. But the dry style, the brut style, right, is what we have on shelves in supermarkets or anywhere today. Um, and Ayala was one of the first ones to establish that kind of style and it got really popular in London. Mm-hmm. Back in the mid 1800s, 
and there it made its way around the world. And here we are actually having a Brut Natur. Yes. So this is uh, the driest uh, champagne can get. It's a really crisp, dry acidity, mm-hmm. maybe pretty Chardonnay-based. Yeah, and the thing about the Brut Natur is you add a dosage for the secondary fermentation in the bottle and usually you add another dosage before you add the cork. That's the uh, dosage for sending out. Yes. To adjust the sweetness just to the level you like. And on a a Brut Nature, isn't that where they take the dosage? Yeah. They don't add a second dosage. But for the Nature, the dosage comes from a... uh, um, They don't add sugar, they add a must? No, that's different. Oh, okay. So for the Brut Nature... They just let it ferment the second time in the bottle, and they don't do anything. Okay, gotcha. So this is like, they also call it zero dosage. Ah. So it's only the first dosage for the secondary, initiating the secondary fermentation, and no uh, dosage for sending it out. Okay, gotcha. No adjustment. Just how it came out naturally. That's why it's called Brut Nature. Oh, okay. This is really so, good. Let's try. So, sorry, everybody. I'm burping like crazy. We <laughs> drank a lot of champagne yeah, tonight already. Bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you get a little bit of yeast on the nose, mm-hmm. not too dominant. Yeah, this has this has spent some time on also, the leaves, but not a lot of time. Also has this characteristic chalky minerality yeah. that you find in champagne and chablis. Really high acidity. Really high acidity. Mouth watering as yeah, like crazy. Mm. It has a very fine mousse. Good deal. The, the, yeah. You can tell that there's still a bit of sour candy yeah. sourness to it. So yeah, that would be a, a bit of malic, malic acid, acid that's still yeah. left. It's quite spiky. Yeah. yeah. But uh, then this chalkiness mm-hmm. covers your mouth. <clears throat> right. So it's really a food-friendly wine. We had it early actually with like American fried chicken. We Which did. It's like a great combination. Yeah, we had it with some Popeyes. Yeah. Popeyes and uh, barbecue sauce. Yeah, Corky's barbecue sauce. And it worked perfectly. Mm-hmm. Champagne, that's the other thing we have to mention. It's maybe the most food friendly of all wines on the planet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can pair champagne with most things. Uh, most things that can handle something that's a little sour. And Especially this kind of champagne with this dryness and high acidity. Yeah. It wakes you up better than any coffee. It does, it does. We had long drinking sessions with winemakers, like to the early morning hours, and then somebody pulled out a bottle of Brut Nature. How many wines? You drink a glass of it. How many wines did we have during... Maybe uh, 12. No, I'm talking during uh, pro, Pro Wine this year. Proline, through like three forty, yeah. over three hundred, yeah. and we would make a lot of trips over to the champagne section to wake up a little bit. Yeah, just recalibrate. Your yeah, palate, wake yourself up. Right, we were doing a lot of business there and a lot yeah. of talking to a lot of people. I don't recommend it while driving, but this is better than any Red Bull. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't drink and drive. <laughs> <laughs> But it will wake you up a little bit and help you get you, get you on a little bit longer. Yeah. You have a longer working session in front of a computer at night. Right, yeah, a little little yeah. champagne. On a little glass of champagne might help. Pop you up just a little bit. 
Maybe even better than an espresso. So what are we moving on to next? So next, uh, we need to talk a little bit about the Premier Crew and the Grand Crew in Champagne. Oh, okay, yes. So, different from Burgundy. Uh The Premier Crew and the Grand Crew is attached to uh, vineyard sites. In Champagne, it's villages. Yes. So anywhere in that village appellation, Uh it is Premier Crew, Grand Crew. Right. So we have now a very, very... A uh, nice um, Grand Cru from the village of Versigny. Versigny means up to the north, so it's north of Rams Champagne. Mm. In the mountains, about 300 above sea level. We have 70% Pinot Noir in this and 30% Chardonnay, nothing else. So it's a straightforward Grand Cru Champagne. Wow, that's why I like it. <laughs> I do like the. I do like the Pinot Noir. And the producer is called Mouzon. Very straightforward style. Beautiful bottle. Beautiful bottle. Simple label. And a really competitive price. Yes. We got this for 30 euros. So a Grand Cru usually is around 50, 60. So this is a really good deal. Ah, now this one definitely has been on, on the lees. Yeah. You get that doughiness. Longer yeah. than, than the last. The brioche, the famous brioche, mm-hmm. like, or freshly cut toast. A bit of cookie. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the yeasty. This is this is right up my alley. This is my style right here. This is what, what I look for in a champagne. That's a personal preference, by the way. Yeah, you definitely can feel a little bit more sweetness than in the last one. Fuller body, still that chalkiness. Yeah. You get that typical champagne freshness, sharp acidity. It's really good. Again, very fine mousse. Yeah, this is this is a great example of champagne at a really competitive price point. And it makes me happy. Yeah. This is happiness in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, you Again, you can pair this with anything, like almost everything. This is a great example. And also the Pinot Noir gives it a little bit more fruitiness. Right. Berry flavors almost. And this blends well with the yeasty aromas. (laughs) (laughs) I dig it. This is good stuff. So yeah, we finish this glass and then go over to the next one, which is um, one of the high-end champagne. Mm. A really like iconic bottle, about three times or four times the price of the one we just of the Grand Cru we just had. So this is the Perrier uh, Jouet uh, Belle Epoque, mm-hmm. 2007 vintage. So why why does it have a vintage? Because they actually had good quality enough quality grapes that year to produce a great champagne in that one year. And Perrier Jouet was one of the first houses. Uh, that established actually actually making vintage champagnes mm-hmm. and not like a blend of several. Right. Usually it's about three years they blend. You get a consistent quality. They were actually proud of making that. <clears throat> they fill it in a beautiful bottle with this uh, Art Nouveau style, 1920s style. It is. It's uh, the flowers and... <laughs> Be honest, a little funny here. This uh, this label reminds me of uh, there's 
There's this scene in uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Ah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit like that. A very sexualized scene with the uh, flowers. And uh, the label reminds me a little, uh, that <laughs> a little bit from that artwork. So it's a beautiful bottle. It's not cheap. It's in high-end champagne. Yes, it is. It's up with like the Dom Perignons or the Rodora Crystals ah. or other famous ones. But it has a little bit more individuality, I think. I agree. So spent a ton of time on the leaves. Yeah. You you can get even more yeast as with the last one. Yeah, that uh, also you see it's it's in all their vintage. Yeah, it spent a lot of time in the bottle too. Right. So the aromas had a lot of time to develop and unfold. Oh and man, complexity is way up there. And interesting. The flowers on the bottle also give a hint, but that's what they actually are aiming for, this florality. Yeah. Floral aromas, like white flowers, magnolia, and some, like, roasted hazelnut in the back. Now, here's something that's interesting. We opened this bottle earlier tonight, and we left a little bit in the bottom just for this show. So now, the effervescence is pretty much gone. Yeah. And it's... Still holding up one. Now it just tastes like beautiful. a beautiful wine. Yeah. There's no sparkling to it anymore. Just a little bit. Just a tad bit. That nuttiness is coming mm. out. It brings out some yeah. more. When you, when you take away those bubbles, it has brought forth some but yeah, other you, qualities. You see what, what, that are quite nice. What a nice, beautiful yeah. wine this actually is. It's like a painting. It's great. A ton of complexity is really deep. A lot of layers. Yeah. Keeps you, your mind busy too. It, and it's also pretty enjoyable just on the sensual level. Absolutely, it is, yeah. So, this is like one of the pinnacles of champagne. Highly recommend if you ever have the opportunity, try it. I like it. That's my favorite for the night, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, that's another league. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is definitely another yeah. league. I could drink that all night long. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That is it's we wonderful. We also had it with food. It's food-friendly. You can drink it just as it is. Mm -hmm. This is, like, versatile as it gets. Absolutely. One of the great wines of the world, I would say. Yeah, it's it's up there. I would take this over Dom Perignon. I would take it over Cristal. Cristal. Uh, this is way up there. It's way up there. It's great. Okay. Get this. <laughs> I think, yeah, we, we got you a little overview about champagne. If you have any questions, any additional comments. Bitches, just, moms, yeah, complaints. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just reach out to us. Give us reviews on iTunes or the other platforms. We really want to hear from you guys. Uh, we're trying to get a lot together. We're trying to improve this show. We're trying to get better equipment. We're trying to do a lot of things. So trying to get, not we're trying, we will get guests on the show mm -hmm. pretty soon. Winemakers, uh, experts. So far this is our 13th episode and we've been 100% independent. So we, <coughs> we're, we're <coughs> sponsors. <coughs> we're open. We're definitely open to uh, sponsorships. Uh, we're going to try to get a Patreon up yeah. and running soon. We'll so check up, uh, on that. 
We're, we're going to put it up on our website soon. We'll put up a donation button on our website, maybe some banner ads to click through, just yeah, to keep the lights on here. Yeah, to exactly. improve our quality. Even this show even better. Even if you guys throw a dollar at us, we'll say your name on the show or something. (laughs) We'll give you a shout out. We'll connect on Instagram, Facebook. Absolutely. This is Pulled Corks on Facebook. Pulled Corks on Instagram or JP Pulled Corks. Pulled Corks on Twitter. Our website, pulled-corks.com. You've already found the podcast. And you can email us at uh, pulledcorks at gmail.com. But yeah, get in touch with us. Find us. uh, Let us know what you think. And we really hope to hear from you. I mean, we really, really want to hear from our fans. Hopefully we have some. (laughs) And uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.